Hello, James. Hi, Leslie. Well, it's really nice to speak with you today. You as well. Thanks for having me. You have the greatest name for a counselor. Yeah, thank you. That's a, uh, that's a, uh, it's always a, it's always an initial subject of conversation. Um, yeah. <laughs> people always, probably know, doubt it. Yeah. A lot of times people don't think it's my real name. They think maybe I, you know, it's kind of like a, like I use it as a, just to say what I do, or it's like a oh, stage yeah. name or something, but no, it's my actual name. James Counselor. James Counselor. Well, thank you so much for reaching out to me for this discussion. You um, you contacted me after watching some of the videos that I've posted and mentioned that you had also been trained at Antioch, New England, but quite yeah. a while back. I mean, well, not maybe quite a while back, but some years back before maybe it was before the landscape was what it is now. And mm -hmm. um, I'm just, I'm curious about your experiences there and your experiences watching what's happened since, and also just how, what your thoughts are on how things have developed in this field over the time that you've been practicing. So would you kind of introduce yourself and, and, when you went to school and what got you into it and what your thoughts are. It's just a really bunch of vague <laughs> questions there. Sure. Well, um, yeah, so I went to Antioch, New England in New Hampshire um, between 2001 and I graduated in 2003. Um, at the time I was living and working in uh, Vermont, which is just across the, just across the river and uh, um, in a small private liberal arts college and uh and I'd been interested in psychology counseling therapy you know when I was younger I started reading books on philosophy and Carl Jung and you know uh, a lot of different things that people probably recognize and uh the situation was that there was this school crust you know a few miles down the road that had a master's degree program in counseling psychology and I knew a variety of people in the area that had gone through it since you know a large percentage of the therapists in uh, uh new england have some association with antioch mm. um and so i applied got in and that's kind of how it all started i also have a, a family history of uh um besides my name uh, other people who uh have been in the counseling profession as well mm. so that's kind of how i got there um yeah so and when I arrived, you know, Antioch was and is, you know, a very uh, kind of liberal type of institution. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's, uh, you know, the, there's the Horace Mann quote, you know, be ashamed to die until you've won some victory or, you know, mm. for mankind. And so mm. it's always kind of had a sort of activist, I didn't think of it in those terms, but always kind of a you know, uh, um, a socially oriented mission or conception of itself. Mm. And, um, but again, at the time, that wasn't something that I thought much about or knew much about, or was probably more sympathetic to in a way, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It does. And it's interesting because it does sound like it still doesn't strike me as necessarily nefarious. No, it didn't strike me as nefarious either. Um and uh, and I don't think anybody involved necessarily had any nefarious kind of intent, of course. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, it, it was more practical than anything in the sense that the emphasis in Antioch's programs then and perhaps now, although I'm not sure, was really, you know, getting out of the theory and into the work. And um mm. And that was the essence of the training. I mean, we did more uh, kind of uh, in placement hours mm -hmm. than most other programs. Mm -hmm. So, so a lot of skills training. A lot of skills training. A lot of mentoring. That was a big part mm -hmm. of it. Through your, you know, through your supervisors in your various placements. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, as an applied psychology program, or, an, or you know, an applied allied mental health program that was really the emphasis and I was quite good at it um, mm -hmm. I think the training was pretty good mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I found the skills training to still be good when I was, you know, recently there. Yeah. Um, I went to the Seattle campus first and then I transferred to the online program. But while I was at the Seattle campus, the, the skills training was excellent. The, we had plenty of time for individual work and then groups and even the online program did a pretty good job of managing that aspect of things. And that's one of the things that I've kind of grappled with is throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, like how, how much of um, <laughs> it's a crude, crude um, metaphor, but how much of a turd in the punch bowl is the, uh, the woke stuff or the, the social justice training. And it is quite, it quite is, it was enough for me to eventually say I had to pull back from it, but I do think that I gained good skills. I do think that I learned something of value. And so that's something I'm, I'm kind of wrestling with what I, when people ask me uh, as students, is it worth going to a pro to a counseling program? I think, well, it's not, it's, it's not worth not going, but what you're getting is, I'm not sure what you're getting right now. Anyway. Yeah. It the only parallel I can think of off the top of my head would be, let's say you were going to college in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you were a conservative Christian mm -hmm. and you were going to a state university. Mm -hmm. um, you'd run into a predominantly liberal, fairly conventionally liberal academic environment. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and while it might not be like overtly hostile, it wouldn't necessarily be particularly sympathetic to your view of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways, that whole script is kind of flipped. And um, in the sense that uh, the woke thing is kind of like become, it is my, in my, it, to my understanding of it, it's kind of become like a, a hostile environment to people with more traditionally liberal views. Mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. not you know conservative christians notwithstanding mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh so it's a strange sort of turn of events but but uh mm -hmm. like a lot of things it's hard to see the forest for the trees when you're in the middle of it so it sounds like you didn't experience it as an oppressive uh social justice climate while you were in school at least back in the early 2000s no, I mean, I don't think it was. Mm -hmm. um, I think my own predilections at the time were probably more, you know, conventionally liberal myself. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, so I didn't have any like fundamental objections to it. And I also wasn't necessarily uh, enough of a historian of uh, academia and the sort of philosophical trends within it to kind of have, have a real good handle on what was going on maybe behind yeah. the scenes yeah but on a day-to-day -day level no it wasn't that at all mm -hmm. um, so was... you graduated in 2003 and yeah. did you start practicing right away well yeah there's a whole story to that i mean fairly soon as soon as i graduated i actually traipsed off to india for a period of time hmm. um, oh cool and then when i came back yeah and then when i came back i uh looked around and ended up getting a, held a job for a fairly short time out in the uh, community mental health in the Vermont system. Mm -hmm. um, but then eventually made my way back to Michigan. So, so yeah, so I've been, and then I also kind of took a detour into, um, I was a pretty serious student of yoga for a long time mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. then got into various kinds of alternative kinds of modalities of uh health healing body work which took me mm. out to colorado so i kind of had a sort of a out of the ordinary path that i was on mm. on the hunt for uh something i didn't exactly know what i was looking for but uh mm -hmm. i was kind of following this path of trying to the counseling sort of oriented on the mental and psychological and the emotional mm. and then i was kind of interested well how do i tie that into um the body which mm -hmm. was, uh, which had been in, in, uh, important to me in a personal sense, in terms of you know my own process, mm -hmm. 
and and this kind of thing wasn't it wasn't unheard of back then but it wasn't so common you mm -hmm. know so so I kind of didn't know what I was doing but I was kind of just following hmm. um my interests and kind of what what seemed like the right thing to do at the time so it's you you took some time to do some exploration and have taken time to do some exploration and and develop this other this other area of interest that comes along parallel with the work you're doing as a counselor it sounds like yeah i mean broadly speaking you could probably call it you know within the gen the the realm of like somatic psychology or somatics mm -hmm. um, and uh not necessarily like attending a specific program with that name but um but that's the sort of pursuit it was and that's becoming more popular now it yeah. seems yeah so there's a growing seems... awareness of mind body connection and mm -hmm. how we can ground ourselves into our bodies to be more present and more aware of ourselves yeah yeah the whole phenomenon of you know embodiment I guess mm -hmm. would be the word that people use. Mm -hmm. and, uh, what's that mean? And uh, how does that relate to one's sense of identity, which mm -hmm. is a you know, phrase of the moment? And um, uh, and what happens perhaps if one doesn't have that? Mm -hmm. So as you've done this, have you observed a change in, in tone and in, in the culture around things like activism and social justice and what's that been like from your perspective well that's interesting because you know i i would sort of count myself as an observer mm -hmm. um a, a participant observer kind of like the old anthropology experiment and um and where i'm at in the kind of you know communities that i've been around for the last several years are sort of on the outs they're sort of on the outskirts of the cultural conversation mm. but they're not removed entirely from it and um so i think mental health the mental health industry the field you know the the uh the various fields involved in it probably are you know in my opinion it seems like they're kind of the fruits that are being born right now are probably the result of, you know, several years of what's gone been going on in academia and training programs mm -hmm. over the last couple of decades, probably particularly since the two thousands. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it's a sort of larger shift in the culture in some ways. And it's, you know, um, spreading, but I don't yeah. necessarily think it's limited to these fields. However, it is in some sense, um, probably most visible in these fields. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what does that look like on a practical level for you or from your perspective as an observer? Well, you know, during the whole COVID era, you know, we had some of the same things that you hear about up here, which is, you know, people upset at school board meetings and, you know, and, and, and of course, sounds like I'm shifting topics, but I think there's a certain kind of continuity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think one of the things that seems, one of the things that you see looking around is just, um, a fairly, I'd say gradual, but I'm not sure it's that gradual kind of mm -hmm. distrust in institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, if you live out in the boondocks, even here, you know, people self-monitor a little more than they used to hmm. about what they say or don't say, mm -hmm. you know, everybody has Twitter and TikTok and Facebook. So, you know, mm -hmm. all of the stuff that, you know, is going on in the kind of social media conversation is available everywhere. So I think that, I think that changes things as much as anything. So like a self-censorship and um, political correctness? Yeah. I mean, that's not exactly new, but it's, mm -hmm. but it's more pervasive. And do you see that more just at the, in the culture at large and in, in everyday meetings with people, or is it, is this particularly 
happening in your work as a counselor? Well, I can only speak for myself. I think um, in my work as a counselor, I would hope that people feel free to speak freely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I would you know, encourage that. I think, um, but yeah, I mean, for sure, there's a, the, uh, one of the things that's particularly noticeable is the the change in language and emphasis when it comes to things like professional organizations, continuing education. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not just talking nationally, but state, at the state level mm-hmm. and locally. Um, so. Like the types of course offerings you're, and, and the direction that you're receiving from the professional organizations? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that the professional organizations are, as far as I can tell, mm-hmm. um, you know, main drivers of uh, some of the ideological shifts. Mm-hmm. And um, and I suppose they're also responsive to outside, you know, other influences, including their membership. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, you know, if you look at any kind of, uh, you get a brochure, an email for, you know, you know, any kind of conference anywhere, of course, mm-hmm. the, 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 all of the elements that, you know, you might kind of, you know, call social justice or Mm -hmm. um, so forth are all built into it. Most Mm -hmm. sometimes they're central to it. Sometimes they're kind of like an additional, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. class or something. And um, so that's a noticeable change. Mm -hmm. You sort of vacillated around the, the word gradual. And I, I wonder about that too, because it does seem, it, it seems like, it's hard to it's like we're talking about this stuff kind of vaguely but there is a vagary to it and I've it had us it seemed like it kind of crept in gradually in some ways like there were people who were primed to accept this way of thinking from maybe trainings that they'd received in high school or college and then by the time they got to graduate school they were they were ready to accept it more readily versus people who had taken a break. So I put myself in that category. I hadn't been exposed to academia for about a decade. When I came back in, it did seem like there was something markedly different. Like this this really stood out to me as, oh, interesting. We're, we're talking about the world in a very different way. The social, um, social psychology seems like it's set up very differently than I remember learning about back when I was an undergrad. So from your perspective, did you, did you feel like there was a punctuated time when this became really salient to you or, or is it both? Is it both gradual and punctuated? What, what is your, what are your thoughts on that? That's a good question. You know, there's, there's an old joke, you know, how did you go broke and Mm. slowly at first then all at once? (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, That's great. So um I don't really know. I, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. being of the, you know, Gen X or variety, mm-hmm. you know, I think that um so I'll 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 come back to that in a second. One of the things I think that's interesting about people roughly our age is not only do we remember what we're the last people who are gonna ever remember what the world was like before the internet. Yeah. And were the last people who um, physiologically developed into adulthood before the influence of the internet. Yeah. And um, so I think you could probably point to 2007, I think it was when the iPhone mm. was introduced. Mm. <laughs> as when, as, as when the, the, the technology began Something to facilitate shifted. the transformation. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. The way that technology corresponds to this. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have. Uh, I haven't really thought it out exactly. Although there's a general idea that technology is neutral; it only depends on what you do with it, which is true to an extent. Hmm. But well, there's process and content, right? So, like the yeah. technology itself, by introducing a new process of engagement, regardless of necessarily what the content is, is going to shift things to some degree, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, hmm. you know, it it 
it just it changes the parameters mm -hmm. um, of what's possible, at least in terms of process. Mm -hmm. um, and so kind of coming back to the issue of like embodiment, for example, one of the things that I think is interesting is like, and I didn't necessarily come up with this idea myself, but I've been kind of thinking about it, which is that how how much of this, how much of the controversies that we're all embroiled in the midst of are primarily linguistic. Um, mm -hmm, their mm -hmm. language and conceptual controversies mm -hmm. um, their relationship to the really real world something you can touch and feel outside of yourself is sometimes peripheral and um, mm -hmm. even though I'd argue that they're central so you know when you're having a debate about it's like debating the, you know, it's like having a discussions about unicorns and horses. You know, we could talk about these things and have a great discussion about unicorns and horses and, you know, the representation in literature and the history of the horse and, you know, how unicorns behave and, you know, and, mm. and, 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 you know, it might be a lot of fun. And, and, and at the same time, at the end of the day, there's a pertinent issue, which mm. is one, one thing is real and one thing is not. Mm-hmm. And so I think the issue of embodiment as it relates to this whole thing, kind of touching, you know, back on what we were speaking of is that it's very central to it, as is the opposite disembodiment. And there's something about the technology that has changed that, hmm. in my opinion. And I'm not sure exactly how to explain it, but it just seems obvious. That's really interesting. Um, I think... That's a really good way to frame it because it is, it's like the spending a lot of time on the internet, on social media, for instance, it's, it's both intensely social and very isolating at the same time. Yeah. And I think that it seems like it can fill your, it's like filling your social needs with junk food, you know, stuffing yourself with something that's non-nutritive, but still fills you up. So you can end up socially exhausted and without the drive to go and make in-person contact. Yeah. But without having actually done anything that is substantive in terms of human connection. Yeah. It's like a sensor. It's a type of sensory deprivation mm. um, in the sense that you're, um, you're having a relationship and an interaction of sorts, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but it's almost entirely linguistic mm -hmm. and um, electronic image based. Mm -hmm. um, so hypothetically, you might wonder, well, how does that affect people's development? Um, not mm -hmm. only as kids, but as adults. Um, what does it change? Mm -hmm. And um a lot of people point out that, you know, people say stuff on the internet that they never say to anybody in real life. Right. Um, although maybe that's changing, mm. but, um, and, and that, and it's because the social environment is um, mediated through technology. Mm -hmm. And um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think it's really uh, the one, the piece that you added that I've never thought about is to think about it in terms of embodiment. And that's really interesting because that bridges the gap toward to into the conversation about transhumanism and huh. and yeah. technology and how it relates to the the changing of what it means to be a, a human being. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good point. And uh yeah, the whole subject of transhumanism is kind of central to the um cultural uh I don't know what you want to call it, debate at the moment. I'm not sure it's a debate kind of. I don't debate. know what it is. It's a, <laughs> a war. It's kind of like a food fight. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's what it is. But yeah. Uh, yeah, transhumanism or the, uh, which is a sort of a allegory of postmodernism, maybe. Mm. Um, Will you say the, more uh, about that? That's interesting. Well, I mean, I'm not an academic, although I like to read academic-y stuff. 
but you know when you get down to it postmodernism i mean you could just plain english it's kind of like everything's relative right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um except the statement everything's relative but that's not <laughs> um so and transhumanism is the idea that well uh how would i say it obviously uh I don't know if there's a definition, but everything's self-referential. In other words, there's no, uh, there's nothing outside of yourself that would be considered a. Uh, there's no solid ground to use you know, the name of your of your channel, and uh, and so not only can you. Uh, Not only is everything relative, but nothing is certain. And in a sense, then everything is up for grabs, including what it means to be human. I mean, I think it's fair to say that most of the psychology and so on that we've been familiar with was kind of a, you know, came out of the humanist humanistic kind of movements, mm -hmm. right? The goal was the uh, the full realization of human potential you know, mm -hmm. kind of a 1960s type of phrase. And uh, transhumanism seems, would seem to suggest that embodiment is kind of an oppressive limitation. Hmm. And uh, in that mm -hmm. sense, it's unjust. And, and that technology then is a mechanism for writing that injustice. Hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. That's it. You know, it's, it's, I guess I have so many questions that I don't, I don't know how to answer them in my mind and I don't know how to make sense of them. So like transhumanism, the way that you're describing it is sort of like this corruption of individualism in a way, or how is it different from individualism? Because the, the technocratic disembodied transhumanism has a very collectivist feel to it at the same time that it's celebrating the ultimate individuality hmm. or individual determinism. So the, um, and I'm kind of struggling to articulate this, but um, it seems like there's somewhere that these concepts are, are meeting and somewhere where they're, they're in opposition. Um, yeah. Self-determinism, the ability to remake ourselves, the freedom from our, our embodiment. Mm -hmm. And yet it's kind of like the difference between individuality and intersectionality, where at, if you keep, if you follow intersectionality to its logical conclusion, you get the individual but you get it through, it's like a pixelated individual instead of a full, a full um, rounded living individuality, which is not made up of segments and categories, but rather of something more fluid. I don't know if anything I just said made sense, but it was <laughs> it's just no, a lot I... of thoughts. I'm kind of stealing a phrase that I heard Mary Harrington, the English author, say, but she uses the term unchosen obligations. Mm. So, in other words, I don't know exactly what individuality means, but it's uh, but it seems bounded by the traditional parameters of how one would conceive of an individual. Mm. And uh, and and I think that. Uh, But at the same time, an individual is not necessarily self-created. Mm -hmm. You know, an you know, you, you, there's an aspect of your individuality which is received from mm -hmm. those who came before you, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the intersectionalists have a point, um, mm -hmm. which is that you know you are, in a sense, embedded in contexts. Mm -hmm. Um, kind of like the old idea of holons, you know, holes within, you know, parts of holes within greater holes within greater holes, all sort of, you know, kind of like a, mm. a, a Russian doll forever and ever. 
Um, so yeah, well, I think the thing about transhumanism, or at least the way it sort of seems, is that there, there's this sort of sense that the uh, any unchosen obligation, whether it's to the past, to biology, to the community, mm -hmm. to what have you, is a potential obstacle to um, this other kind of true individuality or freedom, freedom from all constraints, freedom from all hierarchies. Like limitations are necessarily oppressive. Limitations are impressive. Unchosen limitations are oppressive, but I guess that's sort of a, maybe that's the same thing. Hmm. Um, and uh, conveniently enough, there's a uh, rapidly expanding industry, which promises all sorts of ways to uh, free you from those limitations. Um, medical? Medical, technical, hmm. biomedical. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and there's always product. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, it's a, in a sense, you could also look at this as like a market creation, you know, mm -hmm. like um, expanding, you know, expanding your market base. So is it just the logical um, progress of capitalism? I don't know. I don't know if it's logical, but it's progress of capitalism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, or something like that. And, uh, Yeah, it's hard to disentangle a lot of these kinds of issues from the financial incentives involved. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe you can't. I don't know. So, as you see it, what are what are your concerns or predictions, or what? How do you feel like we're being immediately impacted in a maybe a positive or a negative way by all these forces? Jeez. I don't know about predictions. Um, okay. Well, I think that I think that probably the truest thing I could say is I don't know, and probably nobody else does either. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, but it's but I enjoy the educated guests project, mm -hmm. and um, I suspect that. Well, there's also the perspective that. Um, we're all kind of actors in the course of ordinary history. And as much as we think everything is unprecedented and mm -hmm. we're kind of at the leading edge of whatever's going on, but maybe that's probably not really the case. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that in many ways, what's happening socially at the moment is a reflection of things that have happened before many times and will keep happening. Mm -hmm. um, so like the spiral arc of history. Yeah, <laughs> the spiral arc of history. And um, I think that, uh, well, you can already kind of see what's happening, at least what appears to be happening in terms of political attitudes, which is to say that people tend to be fracturing into, you know, various kinds of mm. uh, camps. Mm -hmm. It's uh, tribal. You know, there's a certain kind of tribalism reemerging, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. which probably wasn't very far beneath the surface. And, um, you know, I think the, I don't know how you quantify it, but the, the energy and holding together a very complicated, heterogeneous kind of society and culture is significant. Mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. and it doesn't just happen by itself. So, you know, when the the ties that bind people together begin to be to begin to fray, um, it doesn't take very long before it unravels. Mm -hmm. and, uh, what happens next, I I don't know. Um, hopefully, nothing drastic. But uh, I think, in some ways, you know, coming back to just like say mental health, mm -hmm. um, you know, I suppose 
one thing that may happen in an arena like that is people kind of like decide that what they are or are not going to agree with um, what they are or are not going to um, maybe how they are or are not going to work with clients if they mm -hmm. are fundamentally uh, opposed to you know mm -hmm. uh, something which not only would they might consider to be a personally offensive but more might you know violate their sense of professional ethics for example um then you know i could see that there may be maybe there emerges you know alternative or parallel professional associations training programs i don't know mm -hmm. it's hard to say but that's a possibility so Yes, the the idea of alternative and parallel associations that's coming up a lot as as you pointed out earlier, a lot of the change seems to be coming down through the professional organizations, and this changes the landscape and it changes the pressures on practitioners. Mm -hmm. And so, for yourself, do you see a point at which you will have to consider whether to continue practicing under your license or? Does that feel like it's not at risk right now? I don't perceive it to be at risk. Um, maybe I'm naive. I don't, I, you know, I think, uh, um, I think that, uh, well, people who have, people who are licensed by the state to practice some profession whether it's medicine or counseling or whatever, I mean, that's a fairly significant responsibility. And, mm -hmm. and one of the reasons that I thought, well, one of the reasons that I thought maybe, you know, that it'd be worthwhile to begin talking some more publicly about these kinds of things is that by and large, even though, you know, we might be, you know, immersed in these kinds of discussions, by and large, most people, either A, aren't aware of them, or B, don't quite understand what it's all about. Mm -hmm. um, and why should they? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that uh, professional people uh, have a responsibility to say something or do something when it's appropriate. Um, because, and one of the things, I mean, this is true everywhere, but particularly if you live and work in kind of rural areas, you know, what, what you say, what you do, your opinion, these kind of things have a lot of influence. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, like it or not. And uh, so, you know, if you, if, if, a, if somebody takes their kid into some therapist or some doctor and, and they, you know, diagnose them with something and, you know, recommend that they do X, Y, Z, I mean, they're probably more often than likely going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, we don't work in medicine, but, you know, there's the old first do no harm thing, which is, you know, and that's important. And I think that um, as a professional person, when you're dealing with kind of like some of the more, uh, you know, controversial aspects of what's going on in, in you know, that, that affect our, our work days, mm -hmm. um, at some point, you know, you have to either decide mm -hmm. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and go along or I'm going to say something if it doesn't sit right with me and, it, and I feel like um, something needs to be said. Mm -hmm. So, and that's hard to do, right? I mean, it's hard to do because well, most mm -hmm. people don't like conflict, particularly therapists. So. Yeah. It's taking a risk for sure. Yeah. It's taking a risk. Mm -hmm. And, um, but there's also risk in not taking risks mm -hmm. and um you know there's you know there's a risk either way and uh and what's the bigger risk so how are you balancing that in your professional life right now is it something that's coming up much or are you is it mostly peripheral to the work that you're doing um On a day-to-day -day basis, I would say it's um, somewhat peripheral. 
um, you know, in in the work that I do, I don't feel any particular pressure mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, do something. Well, I don't I don't feel any ideological pressure to do mm -hmm. something that I might not agree with, and. Uh, um, so I, you know, in that sense, of course, you know, I, I can only speak for myself, but, uh, so yeah, how to answer the question, I guess, um, I'm concerned about the, I guess, uh, uh, the directions in, in the, in the larger sense of things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think that, um, so that's kind of the perspective I take. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that to the degree that uh, to the degree that stuff kind of begins to sort of, you know, sift down and filter down into local communities and stuff. And you know, then it might be important to uh, be more direct. But, mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it does. It's in, in the, the way that you pointed out that the licensed professional kind of wears this mantle of authority that yeah. is for better or for worse, as you say, influential. And we're seeing this, this new cohort of very ideologically trained mm -hmm. counselors coming into the field. And we know what the trainings consist of. And we know that there's a pressure to influence people in a certain direction, a very specific direction that seems to run counter to long-standing notions of mental health in some ways in some important ways so yeah. that is it sounds like that's where your concern really is is about where this is going and the influence that this can have yeah i mean one thing i've taken away from listening to some of what you've put out there and the conversations you had is the is the real difference in terms of um how uh people are being trained and how they think of what they do mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um you know i mean every you know like everybody's you know a, a common sort of tagline is you know becoming an agent of change let's say yeah yeah you that know? was explicitly told to us right that we would be agents of change yeah and it was sort of like you know kind of vague way that kind of sounds kind of good you know kind of like well okay people yeah People yeah, are, change people's lives for the better, help people. Change people's lives for the yeah. better, right? Yeah. yeah. But for the better of what and whom? Right. And the, the emphasis is not so much on what the, even changing the person's life for the better. It's kind of the person is a uh, uh, a tool for, right. um, you know, other kinds of change. Yeah. Yeah. And so at that point, that's when, you know, I think it's like put the brakes on. Yeah. I've heard it described as a, a client or a patient as a clinical opportunity to do something else in the world yeah uh, which is a... uh really shocking from a like an individual psycho psychotherapy kind of perspective to see that person as a thing to be used in order to influence some other thing right yeah. because at that at that point you're not so much a therapist as you are some sort of uh secular missionary yeah yeah and um and uh, i don't know if secular is the right word there yeah. but something like that mm -hmm. and um and and that's fine mm -hmm. if that's what they've that's signed what up. that person wants and knows right right but mostly that's not what they've signed up for no it seems like a giant bait and switch yeah and um yeah and that in some sense is just in my opinion fundamentally unethical mm -hmm. um not to mention dishonest mm -hmm. and uh and i and i think one of the hardest things about doing therapy is figuring out you know because you know you're a person you've got on you know your own beliefs and thoughts and prejudices and whatever mm -hmm. else it is that you know makes you up and uh and that's not your client's business, you know, and uh, 
it's not your business to uh, necessarily convince them of anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know. That seems to be a old fashioned attitude. <laughs> it's definitely being done differently now. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I'm like everybody else. I'm kind of just part of the reason it's interesting to talk about it and have dialogue about these things is because I'm just like everyone else kind of working my way through it as it's happening. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, so what comes next? I don't know. Well, I believe personally that the dialogue is important because through engaging with these things, honestly, and, and, without intimidation and without the pressure of self-censorship and political correctness to just actually have a discussion about what it means while it feels kind of clumsy I think that it's it's kind of the antidote to the the suppressive mystique of all of this and the the pure pressure and this and the the pressure from above the pressure from the side the pressure from below to keep in line with a certain like silent acquiescence that seems to yeah. be at the heart of maintaining this. Yeah. I sort of have thought that um, even though I don't equate my current situation with anything historically as extreme as, you know, some of the, you know, more uh, oppressive kind of societies or something from the past, but I kind of wonder if this isn't what it feels like a little bit, mm. you know, mm -hmm. like the, the time and the place is different and the situation is different, but there's something similar about the feeling of it. Yeah. I you mean, know. it certainly is strange to experience a whole population coming under sort of a spell where they, they can't speak openly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a lot that, could probably be said about that. I mean, I think, um, yeah, there's something about, you could, you could theorize that there's something about human beings, which, um, how did someone say it? The idea was that people are some, they have, there's kind of a religious thinkers by nature. Hmm absent of any particular religion mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um and so the kind of idea is well if there's a vacuum in that regard something will come to fill it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um i don't know why i keep coming up with all of these old sayings today but there's another one which is something like uh you know in general don't deconstruct a fence until you know why the previous guy built it. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is to say that boundaries between things and definitions of things and ways of doing things are, were all solutions to problems that you don't even remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and to change them could be the unraveling of something that you don't predict. Yeah, and the, and the idea goes on that, you know, take away all of those things and the problems come back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe in slightly different formulations, but but the essence of them is the same. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, you know, the idea that, um, the idea that you can't say stuff, because mm -hmm. if you do, you're going to get sort of, well, canceled in the contemporary vernacular. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, growing up, I think that's that's hard to imagine. Nobody would even have thought that was possible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So, what do you think comes next? What do you think is a, a a practical move for a person who's grappling with this right now? What can we do? Um, well, 
you mean just any any old person or a therapist or yeah it's, yeah well I guess either if you have any thoughts just if you're somebody who's concerned but don't really know what to do about it what do you think ask questions mm -hmm. um you know uh get a second opinion <laughs> you know just like uh and and I think too if you're a person of a, a more liberal disposition who is not necessarily interested in the uh you know the more woke side of things or whatever your disposition I I kind of count liberal as a sort of generic term that encompasses both liberals and most conservatives frankly um but uh you know, ask questions of people and don't be afraid to um, believe what you believe and value what you value. And uh, just because somebody's got a degree or a bunch of letters after their name, don't necessarily take everything they say at face value. Mm -hmm. You know, they know what they know, um, but they're not omniscient and mm -hmm. they're not necessarily unmotivated. So, you know ask questions and know that you have a right to do that. It's kind of the same thing you tell somebody going to the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. You know, if they write you a prescription for a drug, ask them why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, make, make sure you know before you leave the room. <laughs> well, that's great advice. Yeah. So any recommendations or do you, are you anywhere writing online or do anything where you'd like to direct people to, to find more of your thoughts? Um, not quite yet, okay. Um, but uh, I do have some ideas about uh, putting some stuff online um, in uh, the relatively near future. Okay. Um. So, yeah, more to come on that. Okay, sounds good. Well, James, it's been really great to speak with you. I really appreciate your thoughtful observations and analysis and a great conversation. So thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks, Leslie. It was a real pleasure and uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Yeah, I would love that. All right.